0: You're listening to this choir nerd podcast, where I blabber on about music things, mostly. I'm your host, Mark Davin. Hello, hello! Welcome back. Hope you are enjoying this sunny summer here in Seattle. I've just got back from my two-and-a-half-week road trip, which ended with a 4th of July celebration on Haven Lake. I suppose those of you that are Facebook friends with me probably saw that. Over my vacation, uh, our epic long road trip to New Orleans and back, I had a lot of time to be bored in the car, so I tried to amuse myself by editing the last podcast with Gus Denhard from the Early Music Guild. We had a great conversation about the Early Music Guild, its beginnings, and what they're up to these days, and the future of early music. I had a lot of time in the car, and maybe I spent too much time editing out the silences and ums. and general evidence of my inability to articulate myself. I apologize if bits of this sound unnatural, but the information is good, and I think anyone who is involved with early music, or if you're an audience member, should give it a listen. Another tricky part about having this podcast is trying to cover all the topics while maintaining a natural and candid conversation. I hope this gets easier with time, but uh, maybe next time I'll just try freestyling it. Okay, so without further ado, I bring you Gus Denhardt. Okay, first I'd like to welcome Gus Denhardt to my podcast, and thanks again for being on the show. It's great to be here. I bet most of the people listening will already know of you, well, because of your great hair and uh, your (laughs) work. And parkour abilities. And and parkour abilities. And of course with your work with EMG and SBO, but I suppose it doesn't hurt for you to just briefly maybe talk about yourself and and how you got interested in early music and what drew you to EMG and the work you do there.
1: Sure, yeah. Well, I've been at EMG for 16 years I guess now so uh, the year 2000 I came out here and at that time I was in Bloomington Indiana i had finished my uh, coursework for the doctoral program there I was looking for academic jobs and I was finding really nothing that I was qualified for (laughs) and I guess that's not necessarily a new story but I was so enamored of the field I was very interested in working in the field in any area that presented itself and the job for the Early Music Guild came up in the early summer of 2000.
0: Wow, so the Early Music Guild had been existing for a while beforehand?
1: Very much so. So 1977 goes back a very long way and predating the Early Music Guild there were societies in town already here I believe for both Recorder and Viola da Gamba so there is early music activity here almost as early as in the different uh, places around the country in Europe. And so
0: the late 70s is about when Early Music Guild officially became itself?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it became a non-profit uh, in its own right in 1978, and the early activities of, the early, of uh, early Music Guild were essentially bringing international artists to town. Uh And the people who really wanted to hear them at that point were the amateur musicians who had these societies. Interesting. Yeah, they wanted to be inspired. They wanted to understand more about the music themselves. And so they essentially pooled their money so that no one would lose too much. And they held a public concert of some touring artists that not so many of them are even active anymore at this point. And lo and behold, other people came, as Seattle is a place of curious listeners. And so from those early concerts, they were emboldened yeah. to to do more.
0: And do you remember who the director was?
1: For a long time, it was a volunteer board of directors. There uh-huh. was certainly not a paid staff uh-huh. for many, many years. Uh, Peggy Monroe, who's okay. a local percussionist, was involved. Uh, Stephen Stubbs was involved. Oh, wow. He was a very young man, a lute player. Yeah. And then um, Peter Siebert, who yeah. is our current vice president and longtime uh, leader of the Recorder Society. I'm sure I'm leaving out a few names, but it was many years until they had uh, paid staff, and it was really just a sort of meeting of the minds of uh, curious musicians. Yeah,
0: Great, and so you came in about 2000, you said, and what was their title?
1: It was going to be executive director, uh-huh. which is the role still. And I think I was maybe the third executive director at that point. The person before me who had the longest tenure was Maria Coldwell okay. And she really established the organization, nice. uh, got grants uh, from different sources, and pulled things together.
0: They, they did a national search, it sounds like.
1: They did a national search. And at the time when I came in, I had lots of musical experience, but I had very little business experience mm-hmm. or the, the management financial skills that someone would need. I learned a little bit along the way. I made a few mistakes, and I had some wonderful volunteer board members who came in to the office and helped me do a little bit of catch-up.
0: I don't see you doing this as much, but you play the lute. I do, yeah. Did you start off playing more of the lute during your time starting off with
1: EMG? Actually, no. I attended Peabody Conservatory in the late 70s as a tuba major, and I was a busy... As a tuba major. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I got, bum, bum. Uh, like a lot of people, I was inspired by the late Romantic composers, Bruckner and Mahler yeah. and Strauss. At Peabody, uh, you had to have a minor instrument, and it had to be an instrument that could play more than one note at a time. Huh. Okay. And so, of course, we were all steered toward piano. Okay. But I was really, you know not a, not in a good relationship with the piano. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> yeah. So Ron McFarlane who was a student in the area at the time uh, who later went on to have a very famous solo career on the lute was sort of a, a, an assistant teacher there and so I got great instruction on the lute from the beginning without even realizing that this guy was going to be one of the big players and so I got very much inspired. Uh, It was a minor instrument for me for many years. Then I moved to Chicago to study tuba with Arnold Jacobs, who was at that time with the Chicago Symphony. And I brought my lute along, Mm -hmm. didn't play it all that much for years, um, and was a a freelance uh, tuba player in Chicago. And then I ran into Gail Gillespie and Kevin Mason, uh, two people who uh, I think Kevin is not active in early music anymore. Gail is still quite active with the Galilei Quartet. Uh, actually, I'm not exactly sure of their name. Mm-hmm. It's a Lute Quartet sure. based in Chicago. Sure. And I got very much inspired again. Some years later, moved to Bloomington, Indiana to study with Thomas Binkley. And then I was I was sort of hooked. I was sort of hooked on what had been my hobby yeah. became instead.
0: You always wonder what life path takes someone to the lute. Back to tuba? Or um, are you playing any tuba these days? Well,
1: you know, after years of selling all my tubas, I had a huge collection of fabulous instruments. Just recently, I picked up an E-flat tuba, and in the evenings, I play very out of tune by myself in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's, I think this is sort of my second childhood. You know, I'm not going to buy a sports car, so I've got <laughs> this E-flat tuba.
0: <laughs> That's great. 2000, you came on. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the next major thing that happened was this merger with Seattle Baroque Orchestra. Is that right, or is there something major that happened between then?
1: The merger happened in 2010, and during the 10 years before that, I had some wonderful partnerships with several board members who were very intelligent about programming and very knowledgeable. It was Theodore Deacon, Mm -hmm. Uh, and Fred Haltman, two people who are no longer on our board. But they were a great inspiration to me and great partners. They knew recordings and they knew groups. And the three of us did a lot of programming for those years, a little bit more experimental than what EMG had done before. We certainly uh, continued to present the groups that were the tried and true, but a lot of experimentation and some really good concerts. And then we also almost immediately started on this idea of doing a Baroque opera in town, a chamber opera. Mm-hmm. And I believe our first production was in 2002. It was a staged version of Monteverdi's book eight, Madrigals. And the four productions that followed that one, these were some of the first performances of early opera on period instruments in the Seattle area. Mm. And they were great fun to do. I think we introduced the audience to things they had not seen and heard before. Ultimately, they weren't really financially successful for EMG. Mm -hmm. We couldn't really find the funding that would allow for this sort of production. And so we're kind of out of the opera business for the time being, although the idea of uh, being involved in those productions again with the right partners is still sort of on the back burner.
0: Where did you perform in the 90s and early aughts?
1: In those days, Early Music Guild was sort of all over town. Before my time here, they split their time, I think, between the First Methodist Church, uh, which is a wonderful venue. They could get into Meany Hall occasionally. The scheduling was diffi- difficult, but that was a wonderful venue. St. James for uh, certain works and i think uh, gethsemane lutheran Mm -hmm. uh, was also used in those days it's been uh, renovated since Mm -hmm. so it was a little bit of a homeless organization and i think sometimes the board members would pick a venue based on the kind of music that was being done which was a very creative idea but it was hard to really solidify audience expectations without having a home venue so i think it was a good choice for us to start at town hall and stay there and yeah. establish a long-term relationship.
0: What about the audience size? Do you feel that it was particularly big or small back then?
1: I know that in the early 90s, and I don't have the, the numbers right in front of me, 90s through the 90s, the audience was probably larger and our subscription base in those days was so large that occasionally they would have to stop selling subscriptions oh. because no single tickets would be available to see people. So this was a real boom time for Early Music Guild. There weren't any other early music organizations in town. And so this had become quite popular locally. It was really a, a feast.
0: This merger with Seattle Baroque Orchestra happened about 2010. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk a little bit about the idea behind that and um, how that's going.
1: Well, it extends back, I believe, late 90s when Byron Schenkman and Ingrid Matthews moved to town. Mm -hmm. Early Music Guild presented them on EMG's Concert Assistance series. Mm -hmm. And that was a series that was in place to help uh, local musicians put on a concert so that they could essentially not take all of the risk for it. Mm -hmm. And that was so successful that in the following years, Byron and Ingrid formed the Seattle Baroque Orchestra as a professional affiliate of the Early Music Guild. Mm -hmm. And in that relationship, they got a lot of assistance and guidance in developing their own organization. And then Seattle Baroque went on to be very successful for many years. Yeah, and it existed as a separate entity for a while, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think for, for nearly 20 years. I think the challenges came in for the Seattle Baroque in that form, the same time they came in for the rest of us, which was the financial setbacks we all experienced in 2008. Right. And it just became harder for them to operate and to meet their goals. And so the organization was always very popular in town, very loyal board members under some financial duress, and so the two organizations decided to sort of uh, rejoin. Mm -hmm. That was sort of a savings in many areas. You can imagine developing two boards of directors, having two independent staff, and so we brought the two boards together. Not every board member from the Seattle Baroque stayed on, but enough did to be able to infuse the organization with a commitment for both EMG's projects, and Seattle Baroque, we wrote to our grantors and our individual donors and we asked them, you know, please continue giving at the amount (laughs) uh, together that you had separately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And most people took us up on that. And so that really helped to solidify this this merger.
0: And do you think it's going well? Do you feel like there would be conditions where you would separate
1: again? I'm sure not, but mm-hmm. after a, a couple of successful seasons, the directors decided to move on, essentially. Uh-huh. And so we had a two-year director search at that point that was a little bit, you know, we sort of learned how to do a search through yeah. the process. It right. wasn't completely sm- a smooth process. right? But as a result, the staff and the board really got to know a lot about the wonderful potential music directors for Baroque ensembles that were in this country and abroad. We just learned so much about uh, what you could expect under new leadership. And then after two years, we selected Alexander Weimann. And he has just finished his first season getting ready to go into his second. Do you wanna say a little bit about what you've got planned for next season? Yeah, there's a lot on the table. It's a really exciting season. We are actually moving our operations for next year to the Nordstrom Recital Hall.
2: Oh. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, Town Hall had been scheduled to be closed for renovations. So we had made arrangements at Benaroya. Then Town Hall decided they needed to actually postpone their renovations a bit. And so we decided that we kind of needed to stick with our original plan. Of course, the Nordstrom Recital Hall seats, I think it's 512 people. yeah. And our audience for our international series exceeds that by quite a bit. So we're actually doing double concerts for many of our performances next year. We've got Chanticleer coming to lead off the season. This will be their Third time, I believe that we've presented them. Sequenza is coming back. I think the title of the program is The Monk Sings the Pagan. So I'm not sure exactly what that implies. <laughs> okay. We're doing a Christmas magnificat with Northwest Baroque Masterworks and mm-hmm. Alex Weiman directing. Musica Pacifica is coming back, Judy linsenberg's fine ensemble, and Elizabeth Blumenstock is also in that group. Really looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. chamber ensemble. And then the Baltimore Consort closes the season, and they've been old friends and real regulars mm-hmm. out here.
0: That does sound like a lot.
1: Yeah. <laughs> is there more? There's more, actually. Yeah. The other four Seattle Baroque performances. Oh, right. There's a Telemann program. Uh, Mozart Noir is a Saint-Georges, the African composer that, from Mozart's time, which is not well known, Ingrid Matthews will be performing on a program of SBO that also figures in some Brandenburg concerti. She'll be playing a concerti on that program as well. The last SBO program we're calling Ode to the Orchestra and it's 17th century concerti grossi by different composers. There's Corelli, there's Bieber. So this is actually a little bit unusual for us under Alexander Weimann to do 17th century music. We right. spent more time in the 18th century with him. You mentioned you were gonna be in the
0: Nordstrom Recital Hall for mm-hmm. next season, and you'd been in a Town Hall for quite a few years. Yeah, now, right? I think
1: the entire time that I've been here, so 16 years. You
0: hinted to this earlier, having a home base as a venue you mentioned helps. Do you anticipate some adjustment period, getting people to show up to another place? Yeah,
1: I'm sure. One of the wonderful things about Town Hall was they have a community calendar and did lots of promotion of our events as if our programs were their own. And so they were wonderful partners in connecting us to the community. And the opportunities at Benaroya are just a little bit different, and we're still Mm -hmm. figuring out exactly how to present ourselves there. They're also, at Benaroya, very generous with marketing their partner organizations. Oh, okay. And we'll be working with them on that. But we don't know exactly what to expect.
0: You mentioned the seating is quite less than in Town Hall. Yes.
1: mm -hmm. What were the numbers again? Well, Town Hall was 750. Uh And that's about how many tickets we sell for a concert by Jordi Saval, for instance. Yeah. Or the King Singers. And at Benaroya, I I think it's like 512 or yeah, something around that. Yeah. Is that a concern? Most of the international series programs were doing a Saturday and a Sunday performance. Mm-hmm. And so this will be really interesting for us to find out. We've rarely or almost never done double performances before. And if you're not available on Saturday night ever because yeah. you have opera tickets, yeah. well, now you could come on Sunday. So we're hoping that we... You'll reach some Some, some new, new people, people.
0: yeah. We've been considering more secular venues for the Bird Ensemble with the idea that people might rather go to a secular space, but you go to Benaroya and it's very much like a concert hall. I guess Town Hall has that same feel when we sing Renaissance music, you know, all that stuff is sacred, and, you know, we're always worried that people aren't interested in coming into churches to hear this music. Does that ever cross your mind in the music you do? I mean, the music, I think instrumental music feels more secular even though a lot of the content might be sacred. Does that issue ever crop up in your decision-making for venues?
1: Mm -hmm. It does, and it is something that I've certainly thought about quite a bit. Town Hall is a little bit of a blend of both Mm -hmm. because, as you know, it was formerly... A Christian science church and it's one of those big square Roman buildings yeah with a dome and so it implies a church mm-hmm. but then mm-hmm. everything about the building and the way it operates is a community art space right so it's a kind of a good blend of things yeah that's true when we go to church venues on a somewhat regular basis we pick St. James Cathedral right and we do hope to be back at St. James in the future But at least under the former music director there, Jim Savage, it was requested that the music have a spiritual content and sometimes even a uh, fitting into the church calendar. Right. So I think that venue is an excellent place for us to do. Mm -hmm. Renaissance polyphony or other music where there's a large delay time Mm -hmm. in the way the music echoes and sounds. So we've had some wonderful concerts there.
0: Yeah, especially if you... Are anticipating a pretty large audience. St. James seems like it could hold a million people in there, I think.
1: I think I've been told it will fit a thousand people, but unfortunately we've (laughs) never gotten to to try that out. (laughs) I was there for a Stile Antico concert and it was pretty packed. Have you filled it out more than that? It seems like most of our December programs that we've done in St. James we pick up a substantial audience almost no matter who the performing ensemble is. And people are just ready to go to concerts in December, and they love that space.
0: And and that's why there are a million concerts in December (laughs) also. Exactly. Um, How are things going generally right now for EMG and SBO? You probably just wrapped up your season. How are things looking, you know, moving ahead into next season?
1: We had a fabulous season we sold many more tickets than what we had budgeted for and the real surprise to us was the Seattle Baroque Orchestra was very popular and we had experienced a bit of a dip with it during our search period uh-huh and i think i can attest to the fact that 2 years is probably too long for, us, to for do a director's search <laughs> yeah but people were very curious to see Seattle Baroque under new leadership and so many old SBO subscribers came back and lots of other people came out and so we're hoping we can carry that forward into next year at Benaroya Hall. So yes we had a fabulous year and a lot of energy throughout the season. Do you feel like your audience prefers a particular era of early music? It's really interesting. We seem to have several audiences that coexist and While many people buy all nine of the performances, Uh when they do that, they get medieval, renaissance, and baroque music. We notice that for certain medieval programming or renaissance polyphony, that's another example, there's a whole group that comes out to hear that and only that. Interesting. Uh, Some people are very focused around particular performers like Jordi Saval. Uh If I go back and look at ticketing records, there are people who have only come to Jordi Zaval, and they've been doing that for 20 years. Right, wow. And so there's a little bit of bifurcation, I guess you could say, Uh among the audiences. Although we do have a substantial number of people who want to attend everything. Those people, I think they love the idea behind early music, this idea that it's a thoughtful approach, historically referenced approach to performance, and they appreciate the planning and the intellect behind the performance, and they're just attracted to that.
0: Do you feel like people go to see a group mostly because of the music they're performing or because of the actual group and its own merits and success?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really tough question. Definitely for some artists, they're coming to hear the artists, mm-hmm. but composers like Bach and Telemann and Handel yeah, people sure. know those people. <laughs> they know them, and I'm not sure that they notice who's performing them. I'm, certainly many do, Yeah. but they're very much attracted. As you know, Vivaldi is another Baroque composer that gets yeah. a lot of attention. Yeah. I think in Seattle, we've also developed an appreciation for Hildegard of Bingen uh-huh. uh, due to all the work of the medieval women's choir yeah. over the years. So Seattle's an interesting audience. The
0: medieval part of your menu, who's performing that music?
1: This is somewhat of a burning question for us. There's a seemingly less activity in new groups doing Renaissance and medieval music in the US. Sequencia is coming next year from Europe. And that is a group that has been with us for a very long time. But Anonymous Four, which was the most popular medieval ensemble that I think EMG has ever presented, they performed their last concert last year. Uh-huh. And uh, I think it's the huge attraction of Baroque music for many singers and instrumentalists. This is an area where they can possibly have a career because it's a short jump from the symphonic music, mainstream classical music, to yeah. Baroque music. And I think it's just been popularized. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Early Music America recently had a recording competition for medieval and Baroque artists, and they did not actually pick an artist to advance oh, wow. in uh-huh. the competition. So it does beg the question, you know, who is championing that music, Yeah, at least here in the U.S.?
0: Yeah, that is a good question. Yeah. How do you think the audience is currently? Do you feel like you're getting new audience members filling your seats?
1: It is a challenge for us. Most of our subscribers and donors are very much senior citizens. Many of them started with the Early Music Guild in the late 70s, and they're still with us, but they won't be here forever. Mm -hmm. And it is hard to develop new interests from new audience members, so we really do work at it. We do have people coming in. We have uh, younger subscribers, but it's a really tough nut to crack. Mm -hmm. And I think it is probably endemic of our whole field, that there's some uh, reevaluation going on right now. Oh, what, what, well, what do you mean? The way I think of it is this movement started in the 60s and 70s, uh-huh. and so much exploration was done, and the focus had been at that time, of course, very much Western music, Western classical music. Mm-hmm. A whole repertoire of music was brought to the forefront for people, mm-hmm. And we're in a period now, it feels like, where, in some ways, there's less exploration being done, there's wonderful performances being done, right? but you don't hear about the scholarship part or the reinventing part so much anymore.
0: Yeah, that must partly be because people want to sell tickets and keep the ball going maybe we're not in a time where people want to hear early music composers they've never heard of before. That's why people do Bach as much as they can.
1: No, I think you're right, and instead of investing in a new group or a new approach to the music that's potentially not going to be popular, we're all encouraged to just do the same thing. But I think there's other approaches that can be taken. Uh, For instance, in our region right now, We have a mix of cultures that is more diverse than certainly at any other time previously. All of these people have an ancient tradition in music and art that uh, maybe they brought with them, maybe they didn't have time to pack it up on the way here. Yeah, right. And to encourage those people to get involved in early music, I think it means that essentially we have to collaborate to present their traditions. Mm-hmm. And this is something that is not part of the current outlook in early music, and a lot of people aren't in agreement with it. It's my personal belief that any culture that has an ancient musical tradition that's being resurrected or studied is early music. And yeah. there's a group in uh, Turkey right now called Ensemble Basmara, and they're recreating ancient Ottoman music using woodcuts to get an idea of the instruments. And then performance techniques that were based on no input from the cultures that were later uh, taken under the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so if you could argue if there's like a Chinese or Central Asian aspect to Turkish music, that wasn't there at the beginning of the empire. Uh-huh. So they're trying to actually figure that out. That sounds kind of like early music to me. And I'm just very curious about any activity in this area, especially when it matches up with populations that we may have here in the Pacific Northwest. So in New York City, Tomoko Sugawara is working on Chinese and Japanese court music on the kugo, which is an ancient instrument, ancient harp. We have a Chinese population here in our region. Mm -hmm. Isn't there a way to involve them in early music if we just expand our horizons.
0: Yeah, if there was a way to do new early music that would pay the bills it's hard to get people to try new things. Absolutely. And I think getting the business side of it has a direct relationship to the creation of new groups, I think. Maybe there's some policy money for music that we could
1: bring to the public. No, I think it just takes some creative planning and some investment. Yeah. Yeah. I can tell you one thing that's worked, at least for Early Music Guild, is an ongoing partnership with the Mexican Consulate General. So for two years now, we've brought... Mexican performers and Mexican groups to town cool. yeah. uh, to jibe with their Dia de los Patrias, I guess that's September 15th, Mexican independence. Uh-huh. And here's an example of definitely early music. We've got the Spanish influence in Mexico, mm-hmm. and we've seen these kinds of concerts done before on our stage. What's interesting is if we present sort of a new world concert, Latino influence concert in town hall, without any preparation, then we don't get Latino audience members. Mm-hmm. If we collaborate with the Mexican consulate and La Sala and some of the other people in town who are promoting Latino music and culture, and if we allow them voice in the group that's coming, then everybody comes to the concert. Yeah, And so I think it's partnerships.
0: It's an interesting angle to the new audience question. Sounds like... You're, in a nutshell, saying we should do new music that isn't being done that might have a cultural connection. I wonder about groups that are already focused, for example, the Bird Ensemble. How do you think groups like that should go about?
1: Yeah, I I certainly understand what you're thinking of. I mean, a few possibilities come to mind. Is there a choir in Mexico or some point south that is doing the same repertoire that you are? Uh And could you bring them up and split a concert? Mm Mm-hmm. Or is there a Mexican composer working in contemporary music that touches on earlier themes or 17th century Spanish themes? Right. Mm -hmm. Could you get a local audience interested in something like that? It really helps if the audience members that you're trying to bring to the concert are in on the conversation in some way. Uh Because then you've got that sort of local investment. Yeah. But yeah, it is a tough nut to crack. If you have a Baroque orchestra then what kind of ancient African music are they going to play? Yeah, It doesn't quite connect. And so I'm not sure exactly how to make these connections for every facet of our yeah, music. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. I'm
0: always thinking about who's going to fund what we do and we don't get any huge donations. A lot of them are a couple hundred bucks and then in a few, over several thousand. Sure. The patrons of the stuff we do, looking ahead, I think we'll have to look at the tech industry. Mm -hmm. These tech professionals that are, at least particularly in the Seattle area, moving into town and... Connecting with them. Connecting with them. And especially in a time where people don't have that much time and I think going to concerts is
1: kind of a commitment. Both I'm, financial and then planning. Yeah, yeah,
0: I'm basically trying to say how do we reach out to the tech industry because they're the people that could give to the arts. I don't know if that's crossed your mind.
1: It has crossed my mind and you know, one of my big hobbies and sort of a burning hobby at the moment is this parkour yeah. stuff that I do with my kids. I've seen have, the videos. Yeah, they're... <laughs> the ones with you on them. Some of them are painful. <laughs> <They're> all- <laughs> literally. <laughs> but uh, I go to the gym and train with these guys, and they're in their 20s, and they're the tech people. Yeah. And in free moments, I sometimes ask them, do you guys ever go to events at night? Do you go to any public events for drama or any kind of theater or music? And, you know, most of them don't. And they say that they would if it was nearby, if it was something that really interested them and they could find out about it easily. They would give it a try. They certainly have the money to do it. Yeah. As you probably know, some of them are working late into the night and the way that their workplaces are set up, they can essentially live there if they want. And so I think they order their time differently than we're used to thinking and we just sort of have to figure out what that is.
0: The few tech people that we have in our following and in our donor base have a music history background. They've gone and studied music, at least on the high school and college level. And there's got to be more of them. I've thought about offering a super fancy concert package where they get swanky treatment, they get picked up Mm -hmm. and driven totally comfy first class seats, Mm -hmm. you know, and then driven home so they don't have to lift a finger. Mm -hmm. I've heard of some people trying to take music into bars and restaurants and stuff. That on the surface seems like a good idea. I'm generally pessimistic of those mm-hmm. kind of, you know, people want to drink and yeah, it's background music. Maybe the odd chance they'll come by and make yeah. a connection.
1: We have a professional affiliate, the Early Music Underground, mm-hmm. and Henry Lebedinsky is the director of that. Oh, yes. Harpsichordist. You might enjoy talking to him he's been doing these performances in wine tasting bars and there's a pub on Greenwood, I can't think of Naked City Brewery Uh on a a twice a month basis at least and the way he organized it is you buy a ticket online for twenty dollars and you get a free drink with that. Mm -hmm. So you actually get something more than just a musical experience, it's a little bit tangible Mm -hmm. and then when you come there you can order off the menu and of course the bar loves that because this is like a midweek event yeah and people are actually coming in and I know that Henry has had some success good some of it has been just simply the people who are already coming to our concerts are going there too which Uh is fine Uh but he's met some other folks and made a few converts that way oh that's very cool
0: yeah I should I should pick his brain uh, yeah (laughs) see how that's going music underground yeah, Yeah. yeah that's the group I had in mind I know there's Opera on Tap did that exist a yeah. little while ago? Yeah, I think they're still out oh, there. Oh, they're still out there doing that. Um, so it's a very cool oh, idea. And, and
1: there's a new Chamber Music series coming to town with actually some very top-door artists, and they're going to the venues they're going to be using are actually in the Amazon district. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I cannot think of the name of this, but if you email me, I can let you know. Okay. <laughs> they're launching next year. Okay. Yeah.
0: How do you see the future of early music going, thinking about keeping the concerns of our audience base and our, and our future patrons in mind. How do you feel the scene is going locally and I suppose yeah. worldly?
1: I don't travel that much, so I can't speak to every location. But what I noticed at the Boston Early Music Festival last summer was that there are wonderful performers on stage, young people often with lots of energy just pouring their hearts out. For the most part, at least the concerts I was in, The audience was the same people that were at the festival the six years before. Mm -hmm. And like me, they're grayer. (laughs) And there are fewer of them. I do have concerns about where it's going. I don't think we've handed it off very well to the next generation. And I don't think we're handing it off right now very well to other cultural groups who could participate. And so just coming back to what I said before, I think the way to go is very much we continue with our mission that we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. And the real high points for early music for me that have kept me in the field was this uh, reverence for the music mm-hmm. that I know you and I have, and lots mm-hmm. of other people who love the, the old music. We love the exploratory part of figuring out what works for the music based on the viewpoint of the people who were living in those times. And then we're committed to bringing it to a a modern audience with somewhat of a modern interpretation. And I think that that's the best part of the early music movement. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's about the focus on Western music where we have medieval Renaissance and Baroque, but I think that those procedures should be applied to other people's music, Mm -hmm. essentially by them, with our collaboration, and what can we do to build appreciation for ancient music traditions that we're less familiar with. Yeah. So I think we really have to go in that direction.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: You'd mention a concern about not as many Renaissance and medieval groups, at least compared
1: to Baroque groups forming. Do you have an idea of why that is? I look at the wonderful Juilliard program uh, for early music that's, maybe it's been functioning for three years now. Mm-hmm. I believe it is all Baroque. And the people who have come in to direct it, Monica Huggett, William Christie, occasionally Geordie savall I think they've all done essentially Baroque instrumental programs. And so here you have the highest institution for classical music in the country, and they're definitely focusing on Baroque. So I just imagine that young people who are coming up with enthusiasm for historical music are going to aspire to that Mm -hmm. perhaps first. I certainly remember in the early 90s when I was a doctoral student at Bloomington, Indiana, at the Early Music Institute, there was still great attention being paid to medieval music because of Thomas Binkley and coming up with really probing questions about how to perform the music and then letting us experiment. But at the same time, Stanley Ritchie's Baroque Orchestra was attracting wonderful violinists from the mainstream conservatory program from the music school in Bloomington and so all these high-powered string players are coming in to do Baroque and we the rest of us who were just fascinated by this other music were a much smaller group even at that time Mm -hmm. and when I hear about new early music programs springing up at the university level it seems like it's mostly Baroque. I think Ross Duffin's program that he founded at Case Western is an exception to that. He's a wonderful scholar of earlier music. But the program in Texas that Lyle Nordstrom began, Mm -hmm. mostly Baroque activity. Maybe Peabody was an exception. Mark Sudek was there. He has a wonderful Mm -hmm. Peabody Renaissance Ensemble. Uh But I really think that's just where we're pointing people.
0: It's interesting to look into what our education is giving us at the moment, which apparently is not so much Renaissance and medieval music. I had not considered that for myself, because I think both me and Doug Fullington's case, we... You just live there. We just <laughs> we just went there directly. There yeah. was no exposure to this stuff on the college level. It was simply by doing it is what inspired... Was there a I, church connection? Me to do it. Um, No, not really. Not yeah, really. Mm-hmm. I sang in the Compline Choir early 2000s, and then had just finished singing with the Northwest Choirs, grew up in that organization, and wanted to keep singing, and so me and friends started singing together. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of out of singing, I grew interest in
1: forming this group. Which yeah. has been going for how many years now?
0: About, a little over 10, I think. Wow. Mm-hmm. It feels like we just started that thing not that long ago.
1: Do you think there's a good connection between what you're doing and this very popular tradition of choir societies in Seattle. Like we have, I can't even count them, we have wonderful amateur choir societies. Do you guys sort of connect with them as audiences?
0: You're talking about groups like Choral Arts and Mm -hmm. Opus 7, like do our audiences intermingle? In a sense? Um, I think so. We did a survey last year, maybe it was the year before, we handed out a survey during our Christmas concert to get a better idea of who our audience was. And if I'm remembering correctly, the main point I took out of it was that they all attend multiple choral concerts. So I think our audience is familiar with these other groups Mm -hmm. too. I go to some concerts, I don't know how many of the Bird Ensemble singers sort of actively go to other choral concerts. I think I see a lot of familiar singers Mm -hmm. at our concerts, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I think there is a connection, at least on the audience level,
1: I would hope that that's a connection that would sort of nurture your music and that of other professional choirs. I think it's a wonderful thing that some urban areas have these very sociable choir societies where people sort of build their friendships and their personal satisfaction as musicians around these organizations.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think a huge part going forward, thinking about the future of what we do is figuring out how to create more employment for musicians. I bet this is different in the instrumental scene, but in the choral scene, having a paid singer is very uncommon. This is a problem that I'm facing at the moment when we're planning out out out-of-town concerts, some mini tours. Our singers don't have enough vacation time to sure. come and do those gigs, and I see it as a huge problem in the, in the choral singing world. How do you feel it's going in the instrumental?
1: Well, side? I think it's still very much challenged. When I was playing more professionally on the lute, I was getting paid more than the people are getting paid now oh. to come in and do a week of work with the Seattle Baroque or, or a comparative Baroque Orchestra. The pay is not going up. Yeah. And yet the cost of living anywhere in the U.S. now is astronomical. I think in Seattle we have a real problem with people who are creating our art not being able to live within the city limits. And I have one good colleague who's making his living playing music and he's moved like four times in the past five years, you know, just chasing the affordable rent. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's a huge challenge and... We're not really showing much forethought about it. Uh-huh. I very much like this idea that there's conversation at City Hall about affordable housing, and occasionally this sort of live workspace for artists comes up. I know there's a new place in the, the sort of the Cal Anderson Park area that is a live-work building for the arts, hmm. but we need so much of that. We need so much more of it. So you feel like
0: the opportunities for professional instrumental employment has kind of leveled out in the past decade or so?
1: Yeah, I'd I'd want to talk to somebody who's really trying to do this seriously for a living, but Mm -hmm. yes, I think it has, and I think people are making uh, other decisions. They're pursuing other careers, or in some cases, you know, I suppose in some ways, like the good thing about a gig economy, I guess they call it now, Mm -hmm. where you drive Uber or you do some other work that you can control your working conditions is maybe ideal for musicians. Mm -hmm. But I think in either case, they're being faced with creating a double life, a life in their art, and then whatever else it takes to subsist.
0: Yeah, I mean, in the singing world, I don't know anyone who, at least on the ensemble singing side, has a full-time job doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, The opera world is different if you're an opera star, you won't have any trouble yeah. uh, making money, getting gigs, though that's a pretty rare situation. I'd love to know the percentage of people that go into college wanting to become big opera stars, and then yeah. how many of them actually end up making a living that way. Lately, I've been in contact with more and more singers. I did a gig with Early Music Vancouver and Talked to several singers from there who are interested in coming to Seattle because they have in their minds that there's a lot of work here. and Well, there is some ensemble singing work here, hopefully enough for them to stick around because it's great having all that talent around to, yeah, to choose from. Yeah, you sort of from. feed off of
1: it too, just the energy. Yeah, if someone calls the office and asks about opportunities in Seattle, I definitely give them the full story. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Yeah. yeah, no reason to make them mad at you later. I think there's also something about the way that we could train ourselves and train our students to approach music that might set them up better for success or at yeah. least for like emotional survivability. Mm-hmm. I certainly didn't get that when I was a conservatory student at Peabody. No one ever talked about what you were going to do when you got out because you were of course going to be successful, just you know like your yeah. teacher was in that time there was no such thing as a music management class or you know, music yeah. entrepreneurs. I think that's really important to consider those things early in your career. And then also, if you're a person with wide interests in music and you're entering a course of study in music, can you pursue some of the wider options in front of you in terms of musical styles mm-hmm. so that you can be a flexible hireable person yeah someone who can say play double bass in a pickup orchestra play a jazz session at night do recording work play electric bass in the Fifth Avenue theater you know how many facets can you have in your musicianship that will allow you to capitalize on opportunities
0: yeah that's something I've becoming more conscious about in my own life I definitely do many things to put together my piecemeal music career. And do you think people have to be kind of entrepreneurs about it in yeah. some
1: ways? I'm thinking about it because my daughter is an aspiring double bass player now.
0: Uh huh.
1: And is in the Seattle Youth Orchestra path where you progress through the different orchestras. And I find that I'm very gratified that uh-huh. she's taking up music with this seriousness. And then I'm kind of terrified for her at the same moment. Uh huh, uh huh. So I do sometimes listen to her practice. And, you know, I also play the oud, and I've been studying some different Middle Eastern styles. So I'll say, hey, can you play this cadence? And it'll be like a microtonal Turkish cadence mm-hmm. down to it. But you're playing a wrong note, Dad. No, that note is actually in that place. <laughs> so the, the, what I'm trying to teach her is, you know, why not, when you're young, why not have a few different viewpoints about music? Because my problem when I was younger was coming out of a conservatory tradition as a tuba player, Mm -hmm. and in some ways having kind of mastered the instrument to like a medium-high level, Uh but then showing up at an audition where there were 300 other tuba players. Yeah. And so I sort of hit a wall with that. Yeah. How could we prepare those who follow us so that they can approach music in a livable way?
0: Yeah. I mean, looking forward, I feel as a person who directs and leads a professional group, is hoping that we can continue creating work yeah. for these people to even have a shot at making money doing that.
1: And you're doing that with your, like, it's not a student ensemble, like how would you describe the Oh, Vox sec- 16. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: It's really for anyone that wants to audition, but it is an opportunity for
1: singers who feel like they want to
0: try something a little harder, maybe they're not quite ready for the professional environment. Part of what motivated me to start this was thinking about the Bird Ensemble being only 12 singers and we choose a lot of the same singers because they have sung with us before and they have the skills we need and part of that is by performing with us over and over again but unfortunately that means not very many opportunities for other singers so it was a way to reach out to Ensemble singers wanting to step into the professional choral singing world. They get paid a little bit. We divide the tickets and stuff, but it's not the uh, standard rate.
1: Well, it seems like you're giving them a great experience, and I know that your group is legendary for putting together programs very quickly. (laughs) (laughs) So if those... I hope that's mostly a good thing. (laughs) If Fox 16 is under any of that pressure, then they'll certainly develop into into Cracker Jack readers.
0: One of the things that I like about Vox 16, and I've said this, I think, on my other podcasts, but the fact that we have a regular turnover rate every two years, and this sort of sense of competition, I think, is really great. It allows new talent to come in and gives them an opportunity to be heard and be known. I always think back on how I met Margaret Obenza, my wife. We just met by chance at this uh, talent scholars summer school at Seattle University. She has one of the most fantastic soprano voices I've ever heard, and there is no way I can imagine that I'd run into her if I hadn't been at that course.
1: Yeah. You know, there's nothing like this. Where people get together who have those talents. Yeah,
0: there are people that have really good voices but haven't read enough or haven't performed enough to polish up their musicianship skills. I believe that. 80% 70 or 80% of how good a voice you have is god given it's just what you're you know what yeah. you're born natural talent you know the same thing with Sara Sharif we met her at the U-Dub. just randomly just mm-hmm. and it makes me wonder how many people that really love singing that are walking around with these golden voices how many of them are not having an opportunity to be heard right. to be known
1: um, and then having put the sort of pressure on them that they would need to develop the yeah. practical part. Yeah, yeah.
0: and Vox Sixteen I see as a way of both finding those people out and having those people find us. So,
1: yeah, it sounds uh-huh. like a great idea.
0: Yeah, and it's going you know it's going really well, and I, and we've used some Vox Sixteen singers for bird ensemble stuff, and we plan on doing a joint concert this season. So, mm. I think we'll keep the relationship strong there. Though I'm thinking about not focusing on early music in the future, uh-huh. the Vox 16 group, like it might be easier to sell maybe American contemporary music um, yeah. instead of two early music groups sort of.
1: Uh, to me it sounds brilliant and the people involved in that variety of approach to repertoire are, are only going to gain by it and certainly the ensemble skills for doing contemporary music are what what people need to do mm-hmm. do many other things. Sounds like a a really interesting focus. Certainly some of the groups that sing early music beautifully, the King Singers, Chanticleer, mm-hmm. they certainly sing contemporary music and it's just part of a bag of tricks.
0: Unfortunately it's not helping the problem of not having very many Renaissance and medieval groups but at least for my situation that seems to make sense. Yeah. One more question before we end this. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is talking from perspective of the Bird Ensemble and what I'm trying to do with them. And, and mm-hmm. I bet this applies to anyone that's trying to organize and start their own group. What sort of things make a group marketable for presenting organizations?
1: Yeah, I think it may depend on the presenting organization a little bit, but I can tell you that any kind of short compilation video seems to make the most impression on people nowadays and it tells a story very quickly. So. I have to admit, I sort of depend on these things, uh-huh. maybe more than I should. Mm-hmm. And then enticing somebody who has heard you sing or play to give you any kind of a review or reference, if that person is already in the field, it's really helpful. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it just involves a prominent musician saying, oh yeah, they're those great. guys, they're great. Yeah, The field is so small that a little bit of word of mouth goes a very long way. Uh-huh. I often call other presenters just to ask them who they've had recently and and what do they think. And uh, in the same direction, it also helps to really have good personal skills Mm -hmm. and be business-like, don't keep people waiting, don't be the person who's always complaining about the hotel room. (laughs) (laughs) It just helps. It just helps to kind of smooth things over somehow get your product out there so people can comment on it.
0: And how does being famous affect all that? Does that play a factor? you know probably it sells more tickets if you have a group that's well known. Does that play a role in your decision making?
1: Yeah and I think the conditions are really different now and this is what's difficult for us and the people who are trying to get some notoriety now is you know at the time when some of the musicians that we consider to be so famous and household word, uh, whatever you want to call it, we're developing at a time when recordings and the recording industry was interested in recording both repertoire and different groups, and there was like financial incentive. Mm-hmm. And we don't have that anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, I guess YouTube is the the next direction for my my daughter went to Superwoman. I guess that's I guess that's her name. Uh-huh. Um, YouTube personality. And you know she watched her show on YouTube these episodes for months and months, and then they all gathered at the Moore Theater for this national tour, <laughs> okay. and it was it was just completely crammed with twelve year old girls screaming their heads off. Uh-huh. And so maybe there's avenues that we don't think of for early music. Yeah. But yeah, I'm thinking being famous in five years is going to be very different from how people built their reputations previously.
0: And you were saying through recordings is how they did that I think, previously. I think that
1: had a lot to do with it. Certainly in Europe, uh, one of my colleagues, Eric Metzel, talks to me about how his groups would be paid two weeks' work to rehearse a radio concert that was wow. going to be broadcast on a, a European radio station. They would get paid to rehearse. They'd perform the concert live. It would be archived, and they would walk away, and then they'd go to another city and do another two-week run-up to a radio concert. (laughs) And when have we been ever doing that lately? So they got very tight, because of course this was going to be a one-time shot on the radio. Uh And all sorts of performance expectations and the the music was popular in those times. So yeah, we have to find the equivalent of that kind of exposure and support, I guess.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of people are getting their early music and A lot of other music through YouTube and other other means that don't bring in revenue for the people that have made that media no yeah not at all it's just interesting to think about
1: it is and you know maybe just keeping in mind if you love doing it figure out a way to do it
0: yeah when you're choosing the groups that are going to perform the following season that fame takes a sort of backseat in the decision-making it's a couple of
1: things in order to make a successful season we definitely have to have two or three groups that are very well known Uh because we just have to sell tickets in order to make it work and then on maybe two of the other groups it's an opportunity to try something new or to present a repertoire that we know isn't of itself popular and to also try to identify a group that's sort of Mm up-and-coming and with a mix of those things we can sort of make it work Right. Yeah. Well, this is about the end of it,
0: the end of our conversation, and I just want to say thank you for coming on. And, and this was incredibly useful to me, and I'm sure will be to a lot of people that listen to this, especially us early music nerds.
1: Right. So um, I'll tune in. Yeah, okay. <laughs>
0: tune in, and thanks again, Gus. Thank you. Okay.